Let us pray together. God of love, we gather together. And we pray that the words of our mouths and the meditations of all our hearts may be truly acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This morning I'm going to ask you to indulge my passion for history as we think about Thanksgiving. From Deuteronomy we have heard, My power and the might of my own hand have gotten, uh, rather, Deuteronomy says, Do not say to yourself, My power and the might of my own hand have gotten me this wealth, but remember the Lord your God, for it is God who gives you power to get wealth. If you and I could somehow go back in history about 400 years or more and take a quiet drone camera over this land prior to the first European settlements, I wonder what we would notice. We would have come on these very shores just a few miles from where we live and seen the Wampanoag people and their wigwams, the Pocanockets, the Massachusetts, the Nossets out on what we now call Cape Cod, the Narragansetts down in Rhode Island and modern Connecticut. Further to the west, the Iroquois and Algonquin people creating their life in the woodlands. As we went over the Appalachian Range, we would see the Shawnee. Further to the south, the Cherokee and the Seminoles on what is now the Florida Peninsula. Over the wide expanse of the Great Plains, we'd see the Cheyenne, the Arapaho, and the Sioux galloping on their horses across the great expanse, living in their teepees, traveling over the plains. In the southwest, the Navajo, the Hopi, the Apache, and the Zuni, living in cave dwellings in the cliffs, making a home in the desert, the Shoshone on the high plains, and onward to the west, to the far shore. Scores of different identities, each of them having adapted to the land in their own ways over many generations, shaping their lives to the contours and the climate that the Great Spirit had endowed to them. Land that they discovered on their own and made use of to survive, to prosper, and to thrive, just as agrarian people and nomadic people have done throughout history. And if we'd taken that drone down to the local level, we would have seen that they have their own economies, their own politics, their own land deals, their own rivalries and enemies, their own battles and warmongering, their own peacefulness and their own violence, their own means of survival and creating civilization, their own spirituality and their religion. When we stop and look back at the grand scope of human history on this planet Earth, those people occupied this land much longer than those of us whose ancestors came from other places. In the long arc of history, you and I are simply newcomers, insurgents, neophytes. And then if we were to take the drone back and steady it in early November 1620 on what is now known as Provincetown Harbor, we would have seen a hundred-foot-long merchant ship called the Mayflower hugging the coast and looking to disembark. The people on board were loaded down with all their supplies that they could possibly bring to start a new life in a new world where no one expected them. 
where nothing, no one was planning to greet them on the far shore. They'd already, they had cannons and agricultural implements and weapons and food and lots of beer to drink because the water was no good. They'd been at sea for two months in dark, dank, and dripping decks. Many of them had sold their homes to finance this endeavor. They'd given up all they had known to start a new life, crossing 3,000 miles of ocean with no real certainty about where they would actually end up. Many of them thought they'd be somewhere in Virginia or the mouth of the Hudson, but no, they came to the outer banks of Cape Cod. People who had been caught up in the full fire of the Protestant Reformation, who had been tossed around Europe, but had this burning desire to worship God the way they understood God to be in the way they felt called to do it. And once they landed, life didn't necessarily get any easier. As many of us know, they had a truly terrifying and miserable winter that first year. They came to what is now Plymouth in December, and as they tried to build a village and create homes and start figuring out how they were going to live in this new place— More than half of them died. Of 102 people, 50 were left when spring came around. And they saw these shadows in the woods, but never really met anyone until springtime came. As I was reading about their conditions of what it was like to live on that ship and live in what the native folks knew as Patuxet, now as Plymouth Harbor, I shuddered from my 21st century perspective of how truly miserable it would be. Now, when they read their scripture, when they prayed to God, they heard and they imagined a divine errand into this wilderness of the new world. When they heard this text, for the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with flowing streams, with springs and underground waters welling up in valleys and hills, lands of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees, of honey, a land where you may eat without scarcity, where you will lack nothing, whose stones are iron and from whose hills you mine copper, they read themselves into the scripture, just like you and I may tend to do today. And as we've seen over and over, you've got to be careful with people full of religious devotion. They feel empowered to do all kinds of things, especially if they don't have any checks and balances. As I think about the first Thanksgiving meal, which happens sometime in September or October of the following year, 1621, I'm aware that they were two, as we would say in modern parlance, traumatized people coming together for a shared meal. The Wampanoag people of these coasts had just been decimated, over half of their people gone by a plague, a plague most likely introduced by the English and French and other European fisher folk and explorers who had come up and down the coast. They weren't any strangers to Europeans. In fact, one of them had been kidnapped, taken over to Europe, sold into slavery, and then bought by a bunch of Spanish friars and brought back. His name was Squanto, and he was an invaluable interpreter. In fact, he could be given the credit for keeping the pilgrims alive and being able to negotiate the politics of the people who already lived on this land. When they came to that meal, there were probably over 100 of the native people and 50 of the pilgrims. Fortunately, the guests had brought about five freshly caught deer with them. They had lots of ducks and geese and turkeys and striped bass and cod and bluefish, 
They had a new barley crop, meaning they could make more beer. They didn't have forks yet. In fact, they wouldn't have them for decades. So they ate with knives and their fingers. Earlier that spring, the native folks and the pilgrim settlers had entered into a treaty, a six-point covenant, to treat each other well, to do no harm, to harbor mutual trust, to lay down their arms in the presence of one another. And despite the gulf of differences between their two cultures, they celebrated this meal, most likely not at the table we've seen in 19th century engravings, but on the ground, on the land that they both inhabited, and they celebrated some sort of newfound trust. They would continue in this vein for some time, in large part because of the magnanimity of Chief Massasoit, of the Wampanoag people, particularly the Pakanakas. And the pilgrims were able to thrive by his generosity. He basically gave this land to them to have their settlement. He granted after they had already squatted on it. But over the course of the next decade, nearly 21,000 Europeans would come to these shores, establishing the land in which we now sit on, a much more desirable harbor than Plymouth. And not all of these newcomers were spiritual purists. They introduced the idea of buying and selling real estate. They introduced a kind of European capitalism to this culture, which eventually would buy and sell most of the land away from the native people. From the perspective of the Wampanoags, Chief Massasoit's magnanimity would result in the systematic dismantling and handing over of their homeland to the Europeans. And 50 years later, this tension would erupt into a deadly war, which would help establish Europeans' dominance in this part of the world for the remaining centuries, a dominance which you and I have benefited from ever since. So my question is, how do we get back to that original idea of trusting one another, of sharing a meal, as we heard last week about the purpose of communion, of seeing eye to eye with each other, of understanding that there is a ground of all our being, a land on which we inhabit that is much deeper and longer and more vibrant than anything we share. In modern times, many Americans have paid a lot of attention to a a land grab situation, or at least some of us have seen it that way, many thousands of miles away from here in the modern state of Israel. As you know, the past this summer and the summer before, I traveled to Israel where I met lots of people both Arabs and Jews, working for reconciliation, working to have a shared peace, working to have a shared society. And one of the main characters I met there was a man who's now in his 70s named Elias Shakur, a Greek Orthodox priest who, as a young man, was assigned to a little Arab village. He grew up in the land. He and his family were evacuated from their Arab village when the modern state of Israel was created. He's one of the people who decided to work with the situation as it is. And he established a high school, a thriving high school, for Christian, Muslim, and Jewish children. When we saw him two years ago, he said, We are not born Palestinian or Israeli. We are not born Christian, Muslim, or Jew. We are born as babies, human beings. When I saw him this past summer, he said, I believe the land here does not belong to the Jews or to the Palestinians, but the Jews and the Palestinians have to learn to belong to the land. 
I wonder what that means to us 400 years after our religious forebears came to this place. What it means as we struggle with what it means to be a refugee or an immigrant or a settled person. What it means to be in disagreement, to be a red state or a blue state, to be liberal or conservative. I think it's a radical idea still to think that we belong to the land, or more importantly in our theology, that we belong to God, the ground of all our being. Or as some moderns might say, that we belong to the universe that gave us this land. So my question for all of us as we go to the Thanksgiving table this year, whether here in Willett Hall or in our families of origin or the families we have chosen as we look one another eye to eye and as we think about all the divisiveness going on around us, that we ask ourselves, who is it with whom I need to reconcile? Whom is it that I need to have a covenant for trust, for laying down of arms, for truly listening deeply and understanding the deeper values that we all care about and understand? How do we move on from difference into shared values into a shared table that God has given us. It is not easy work. They are not easy questions to answer. It takes a lot of untangling and dismantling. But what it requires of us is to remember that we are born, each of us, merely as babies, as human beings, each with our own needs for survival, for sustenance, for a sense of meaning. And where we find that common ground That common table, I believe, is what God wants for each of us. It is our incumbent duty to find it, to live it, to pray for it, and to seek it out. This week on the radio, I heard about a project that started right after the election called Make America Dinner, in which people of differing opinions are brought together at a common table to share with another their viewpoints to listen to the things that shaped them as individuals. The story they told was about a Trump supporter in California and a transgendered person who had been brought here as an adopted child from Korea. And together, these two told their stories. And the place where they found common ground is that they both identify as being sons and fathers. And that gives the deepest meaning to their lives. As I listened to this story, tears welled up in me as they shared their basic humanity over a shared meal, as they learned each other's stories and, more importantly, learned to tell those stories to each other in the first voice. The heterosexual white male Trump supporter telling the story of his new friend in his own voice, and the transgendered adopted Korean person telling the story in their own voice hearing each other reflected in each other's lives. So I invite us to stoke our imaginations, to stoke our souls, to be on the lookout, not only at Thanksgiving, but throughout the year, on what it is we share and how we grow our common good on this common land. Amen.